0: This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hey, everyone, and
1: welcome back to another wonderful episode of Wednesday's Women. Um, so, I have a little bit of a story to tell, and the story is, yesterday was my favorite holiday. No, not Christmas. No, not Halloween. No, not Thanksgiving. It was National Voter Registration Day. The most sacred of holidays. And today, We will not only be discussing National Voter Registration Day, but the importance of women being voters and one of the organizations who really does promote women's civic engagement.
0: Just so our audience is aware, it's a big deal for Caitlin to say National Voter Registration Day is her favorite holiday because she starts decorating for Christmas, November 1st, and it does not come down before January.
1: Oh no, it doesn't come down to like middle of January, so feel like honored, friends, to be hearing about my true passions in life.
0: National Voter Registration Day is a voting holiday dedicated to getting people registered to vote. It typically occurs on a college campus, usually by a college organization um, or a community organization doing work on college campuses. So we've talked before that While um, younger people make up the largest population of the vote this year, they have a significantly lower registration rate than older people do. So National Voter Registration Day was started to combat that. In 2019, on National Voter Registration Day alone, 473,725 people were registered at events across the country. There were about 4,000 partners to the event Two of these were Clarion University and the Clarion League of Women's Voters. The League of Women's Voters is the largest on-the-ground National Voter Registration Day partner, which is why we're talking about them today. They often host 500 events across the country. Without their support for the last nine years, National Voter Registration Day would not be what it is today. So while National Voter Registration Day was yesterday, there is still time to register to vote at vote411.org.
1: And if you're an early prepper like me, you could totally start decorating for next year, like today. 304 days in in advance, I'm for it. So with that being said, let's just jump in to hearing more about the League of Women's Voters. For those of you that are longtime listeners to us, you will know that we have spoken about the League of Women's Voters multiple times. However, today, we will go deep in depth about the wonderful history that is this organization. So, from 1890 to 1920, the League of Women Voters was actually NASA. And NASA is an organization we've spoken about very frequently on this podcast. As NASA, the group was one of the leading suffrage organizations. In 1909, Emma Smith DeVoe proposed at the National American Women's Suffrage Association, DASA, once again, for those of you that were unsure earlier when I said that, if you're a first-time listener. Um, At that convention in Seattle, they proposed that a separate organization be created to educate women on election processes and lobby for favorable legislation on women's issues. This proposal, though very good, was ignored. Despite their ignorance, DeVoe went on and founded the National Council of Women Voters in 1911, which is really important because at this time, even if you were an educated woman and you knew that you deserve the right to vote, you know, should women be given the right to vote, then you need to start understanding Uh, the governmental and the legislative aspects of our government. So that way you can be also an informed
0: voter, not just a voter. And a big idea was at the time, because women weren't voting and they weren't involved in electoral processes, they didn't really know about them. And so the idea was if you began to educate them on how elections work and why they should be involved in education, women's suffrage would get a lot more support. Whereas if it's sort of like if you don't know you're missing out on something, you're not really worried about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Ten years later,
1: prior to the 1919 convention of the N.A.S.A., which was in St. Louis, Missouri, Carrie Chapman Catt began negotiating with DeVoe to merge her organization with a new league that would be a successor to that N.A.S.A. organization which I find hilarious because they at first ignored her and then they're like, you know, that was a shit move on our part. You should just take over the whole thing and make a brand new organization as we kill Nasa.
0: I'm very appreciative of the League of Women's Voters. They've done a lot, been around for a long time, but I am just going to point out this is kind of a reoccurring pattern with them because they did it to Alice Paul um, there were a couple other instances where they would, like, push someone out and then be like, actually, that was a good idea, but we want it to seem like it's our idea. Um, but the two we've only ever talked about are Alice Paul, and then right now, um, DeVoe.
1: Yes, absolutely. So it is, it is a pattern. So at the time these negotiations were taking place, Kat stated she was concerned that Devo's alignment with the more radical Alice Paul, who we did an episode on might discourage conservative women from joining the National Council of Women Voters and thus proposed the formation of a new league. Though not all members of either organization were in favor of the merger, a motion was finally made at the 1919 NASA convention to merge the two organizations into a successor, which would be therefore called the National League of Women's Voters, which is what we know of today. On February 14, 1920, Yes, Valentine's Day. NASA was rebranded as the League of Women's Voters. This was still six months before the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which is important to note because at this time, women are still actively fighting to become equals in the government as far as voting goes. So there was still a lot more work to be done. It wasn't like they had already gotten the right to vote and now it was just that they still had to conquer that obstacle as well
0: and then i believe by february they didn't even have half the states signed on that they would need for ratification i don't think so either so i don't even think they were like that close it's not like they were like oh, we're in the home stretch they were they were still fighting so the league of
1: women voters began as a quote unquote mighty political experiment aimed to help newly enfranchised women in their exercises, their responsibilities as voters, which I like the way that it's phrased as a mighty political experiment, especially because so many people saw it as an experiment and didn't believe in that it would work or have a lot of success, but obviously it did for it to be around 100 years later.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it, not only is this the centennial for the 19th Amendment, um, it's also the centennial for the League of Women's Voters. Yeah. They also had a big birthday this year.
1: Um, so when the League was started, only women could join the organization, and this lasted until 1973. We're not going to go very deep on that because that's going to play into our conversation later. So Maude Wood became the first national president and thus the first league leader to rise to that challenge. And it's important that we look at that and recognize the challenge of being the first in a leadership position of its type. We see it all throughout history. Look at George Washington, look at this. The first person to be in a leadership position that is a new leadership position or role sets the stage for what that leader will be able to do um, and what the priorities are going to be.
0: Yes, it is much easier to take something over as a leader than to found something as a leader.
1: Yeah. Um, She had steered the Women's Suffrage Amendment through Congress in the last two years before ratification and liked nothing better than legislative work, which is why I think she made a great candidate to be the first president for an organization that focuses on women's education on legislative and governmental action. Mm Mm-hmm. So like NASA, the league worked through a federation of state leagues. By 1924, the league was organized in 346 of 433 congressional districts. So more, very close to three-fourths, if not three-fourths.
0: So So bad at math. (laughs) I want to say it's a little over three-fourths.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Um, But 23 state-like leagues and 15 city leagues maintained regular business headquarters, nearly all with one or more paid staff. So not only were they successful enough to keep their uh, organization headquarters running, but they were doing so well that they could actually compensate their workers for the hard work they were trying to accomplish. Um, However, the depression of the 1930s and onset of World War II brought far-reaching change to the League, as it did with all aspects of American society. Membership at the time fell from 100,000 in 1924 to 44,000 in 1934, and only 10 years, more than half had left. Similarly, the budget of the National League was cut in half, making them struggle in a way that they hadn't before. So league members started meetings in small groups in their neighborhoods to discuss fundamental issues since they weren't able to have as big of a scale as they had prior. And in 1944, convention made major changes in the basic structure of the league, proclaiming it an association of members rather than a federation of state leagues and abolishing the department system of managing the various facets of the league program. And this was done obviously because of the dwindling numbers in membership, because of the fact that um, their budget had been cut so drastically. And this was really the last resort to make sure that they weren't going to disintegrate basically entirely.
0: And it was a very smart move because they continued on for, I'm really bad at math, but a long time.
1: 64 would be 2000.
0: So like eighty five years. That sounds right. Cause they would have only been around for twenty-five in 44, like as the league. Yes, sir. Locking it in. <laughs> so in 1951, the National Voter Magazine was first published. And in 1957, the League of Women Voters Education was established. Which was a separate committee dedicated solely to education so by the 50s they were working on legislative work they were working on programming so they made their own little i guess education committee to handle that who took over publishing the national voter because they felt it was the easiest way um the national voter has since been replaced with email chains as are very common in the COVID area oh yeah so the 50s the early 50s specifically was also time was also known for the witch hunt period, which um, is sometimes called McCarthyism or the Red Scare. Um, they thought everyone in their neighbor was a communism, and so they would just turn people in randomly for communism. So this period inspired the league to undertake a two-year community education program focusing on the li- individual liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. So constitutionally speaking, you can be a communist in America. There's nothing that really stops you. There are some limitations on what you can do as a communist in America. You can't advocate for the killing of your boss or the killing of a government official. Um, but at the time they were. Yeah, I was just
1: gonna say at the time, it's really important that we know that people were getting arrested and fined for so many things. For example, uh, what's the name of that doctor who was, uh, for, he, he wrote the book, um, Sexual Behavior of
0: the Male? Unclear. I've never heard of him. Was it Freud? I only know, the only, like, doctor I know related to sex is Freud. Give me a second, I'm looking it up. And it's only because I had to read the Oedipus trilogy in AP Lit, which is a garbage trilogy. Here,
1: I'm going to find it. Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey wrote Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Human Female. And he wrote it during the Red Scare. And at that time, because his research was, because it was an ethnography, so he was, um, He did extensive data to collect this information, Mm -hmm. basically what he found was that, uh, women have a sex drive and apparently enjoy sex, which was revolutionary at the time. And also, um, he found that there was a lot going on in society that people were trying to sweep under the rug because they didn't wanna believe that teenagers were having sex, they didn't wanna believe that homosexual—homosexuality was a thing. They just wanted to believe what they saw on TV and what was being played on TV was the traditional American way, even though it really wasn't. But he was also, his research was removed and he was sentenced as because people said that he was trying to be a communist because his ideas were going to tear apart the
0: structure of the traditional American family. Yeah, just to be clear during the Red Scare, so the Red Scare is often compared to the Salem witch hunt. the Salem Witch Trials. During the Red Scare, you didn't necessarily have to, like, say a communist belief. Like, it didn't have to be a part of communism. If you just said something that, like, people felt disagreed with the government, they were like, oh, he's a communist.
1: Or just even if, like, it didn't even have to be what the government disagreed with. It could also just be what you uh, don't agree with. So it's almost like in the early 2000s where people would say, oh, that's gay as an insult or as a, um, a way of deteriorating the identity of something, it's similarly to the way that people would use communism as a way to deteriorate something even though there might, you know, even though there isn't anything wrong with being, yeah.
0: And it's still done today, I mean people call things communist and it is like an irk for people who have studied political ideologies to be like that's not a communist ideal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm not saying that ideal is good, but it's not communist. Correct. Um, Did Dr. Kinsey develop the Kinsey scale? He did develop the Kinsey scale. We did do that in my high school health
1: class. For listeners who don't know, the Kinsey scale helps you determine that sex is on a spectrum, and it was actually the first scale that shows you um, the spectrum of sex, even though it did not include trans and it did not include other forms of the LGBTQ plus community that we have better scales for out today that are actually based on the Kinsey scale.
0: I just remember taking that in health class and being like, this is dumb. <laughs> Don't make me waste my time. But so the Red Scare was peaking in the early 50s. Um, during this time, the league began to evaluate federal loyalty and security programs, and ultimately took a position that strongly emphasized the protection of individual rights. So your right to say that you think communism is okay, that, um, you know, whatever, basically that you can't be thrown in jail for saying things that are not a crime.
1: Honestly, too, that I always think when I hear about like, the. I don't mean to like defer our conversation, but whenever I hear about like people being thrown in jail, for being communist, I kind of think of political prisoners again. I know we've already had this conversation about, like, you shouldn't be able to be jailed for your political belief unless it's, like, in threat of harming somebody else, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, if your political belief is that you should be able to kill everyone on your street block, then yes, you should be jailed for your political belief, but if you act upon it, I guess, I guess if you keep that to yourself, then whatever, but you shouldn't just be jailed because you were in support of a communist ideal. Not saying I agree with communism, it's not really a great ideology, but if you want to believe in it, that is fine. So in 1955, the League president, Percy Maxim Lee, actually testified before Congress against Senator Joseph McCarthy, Again, who was responsible for a decent portion of the Red Scare and would just like kind of be like, oh, this person's communist. And so that's why sometimes um, McCarthyism is lumped in with the Red Scare. So she testified against his abuse of congressional investigative powers and said, quote, I believe tolerance and respect for the opinions of others is being jeopardized by men and women whose instincts are worth worthily patriotic but whose minds are apparently unwilling to accept the necessity for dissent within a democracy, end quote. So she did understand why people were nervous. Um, the Red Scare is a big deal. Um, communism obviously isn't the best political ideology to most people. That being said, people are still allowed to believe almost whatever they want. So in response to the growing civil rights crisis after the Red Scare, there was sort of, there usually is a lull after like a big movement, you have a little lull before your next movement. So the next movement was the civil rights crisis of the 1960s, and the League directed its its energies to equality of opportunity and built a solid foundation for the support for equal access to education, employment, and housing. Um, so it's less heard of today, although there are more indirect ways that people say it. There was a point where they wouldn't let Black families live in white neighborhoods. Um, there are still people who will fight against um, reduced-cost housing and government housing because they don't want them in their suburbs or wherever. Um, so so there is still a lot of inequality when it comes to housing, but it's not as bad as it was in the 60s. The League also added apportionment to its national program and supported presidential suffrage for the residents of Washington, D.C. So Washington, D.C. didn't always get to vote on the president, which is weird considering that's where the president lives and the people of D.C. probably interact with him the most. Um, Pre-COVID era because yeah, now no one leaves their house but <laughs> back then
1: I never knew that that's what was their
0: reasoning uh, DC is not a state you have to be a state to vote
1: America is stupid
0: well it's still um so like DC doesn't have a representative in any of the chambers they're just, like, they get to vote for president, and that's it. And then there are a couple, There, well, all of our territory, some of them get to vote for president, but don't get any representation in the chambers. And so it's justified because it's not technically taxation without representation because you choose the president. So. People,
1: that's a hard knock life.
0: Yeah, so there is a big push. Um, the two that have had the most push behind them have been Puerto Rico, and Washington, D.C. Just to clarify, even though they don't get to vote in chambers, um, they're still citizens. Like, if you're from Puerto Rico, you're an American citizen. Um, If you're born in D.C., you're an American citizen. I believe if you're born in Guam, you're also a citizen. And then there's a couple other territories, like the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I think Marietta, the Marietta Islands. I'm not sure. I for sure know Puerto Rico and D.C.,
1: Yeah, I do, yeah.
0: But how weird would that be if you were, like, born in D.C. and not considered a citizen?
1: Uh, I mean, the entirety (laughs) of this conversation is confusing, because here's the thing. I feel that why don't we just add more representation into our forms of government? It scares people.
0: Change! What a drastic, horrible word! But, like, here's what I don't get. People are, like, so against it, but if you ask them how many people are in the House or Senate, a good portion of people couldn't tell you the answer. Yeah, so
1: why don't they just change it and not tell anybody?
0: That comes with a whole different set of implications, (laughs) if your government's just changing things and not telling you. But, in 1969, the League was one of the first organizations calling for the United States to normalize relations with China— um not sure how they feel about that today. <laughs> China has become quite the economic superpower. But at the time, the United States was at a point where they weren't even really willing to negotiate with China. And so the League, um, as we discuss more of their history, you'll see they're actually very involved internationally as well as domestically. Um, they have a pretty good reach. And so the hope is always if a country with a stricter government gets involved with a more democratic country, that they'll start to sort of change their ways because they'll see like, like, oh, things are going so well in the democracy. The contingency to this is that things are going well in the democracy, and things aren't always going well in the democracy. So <laughs> it's not always an effective strategy, um, as demonstrated with China, who's still not a democracy to this day. In 1972, jumping ahead a couple years, the interleague organizations were created in many parts of the country to deal with regional issues um, and were formally added to the structure of the league. And so they would address region specific issues, obviously issues that Alabama faces are significantly different from issues that Clarion, Pennsylvania faces. So that allows them to reach more issues because it's a more focused strategy. In the early 70s, the League addressed the issue of income assistance and also began its efforts to achieve a national Equal Rights Amendment. Um, As we've discussed many times, this amendment does ultimately fail before Congress cannot be ratified. Um, But income assistance is still a big deal today. And as is the Equal Rights Association, the Equal Rights Amendment, not the Equal Rights Association. Um, There's still big deals today, and the League is still putting efforts towards those ideals, if not under those same names. The League also adopted a position on direct popular election of the president. Um, So America operates with the Electoral College, designed mostly because the South was afraid that the North was more populated and so the North would move to abolish slavery and the South didn't want that and so to appease both the North and the South, um, they created the Electoral College. So it goes based off your population so that supposedly everyone's vote is worth the same. I think it works out to one, I think it's one Wyoming vote is worth 19 Californian votes. So it hasn't kept the same um, importance that it had back when they were—they didn't want urban areas controlling rural areas because urban areas were more populated. Um, some argue that was never an effective strategy because it's not that rural areas are contro- controlling urban or vice versa, it's the idea that the majority of your country wants certain ideals regardless of their location. Um, So the League does have a position that popular election is the way to go, and that's where you get your popular vote and your electoral college vote, and sometimes they do not produce the same winner. Um, It happened to Al Gore during one of the Bush elections. It happened in 2016, most notably. And in 1976, the League sponsored the first televised presidential debates since 1960, Um, and the televised debate actually won an Emmy Award I don't think I understand what Emmy Awards are for. Like, I don't think I understand, like, how you get an MI- Emmy Award for a debate.
1: Well, I wonder if it was – because I don't think the league probably got the award. It was probably, like, the television company they
0: worked with. Okay. I just thought it was, like, the debate won an award. I mean – know what Emmy Awards are.
1: Well, the debates as a series probably did, but maybe not like one specific debate.
0: That's true. Next week, we'll discuss Emmy Awards. We'll figure it out. We'll finally evaluate all of the award shows that I have no clue what they're for. So the leagues always had an interest in the environment, even back in 1920s. Um, It's just that the environment doesn't always take a forefront. In the 1970s environment did take a forefront for the league. Um, So their positions were um, taking sweeping national positions on water quality, air quality, waste management, land use, and energy. So they weren't very regulated in the 70s. So if you wanted to dump harmful oil into your neighbor's backyard, technically you could. Um, is not recommended. A lot of factories were producing smog. So if you've ever seen pictures of Pittsburgh or New York City, um, anywhere where there were factories and large corporations, the sky is often gray, and it is comparable to what Oregon, California, and Arizona look like today, where you can't really see the sun as great because the smoke and smog is obscuring your vision to the sun. So they did take... Um, a position on that, and eventually, obviously, we did get regulations, because Pittsburgh can see the sun sometimes. It's It's rather rainy in western Pennsylvania.
1: That is.
0: Now, we move on to more
1: recent history with the league. So, as we discussed, during the Great Depression, the league saw a major decline in membership, and the decline, other than the reconfiguring of the league during the convention never really addressed that membership decline specifically. However, um, they did address the issue in 1982. So at the 1982 convention, they amended the bylaws to permit member recruitment by the nation, the national and the state levels, as well as the local level. So convention delegates also called for the development of a long-range plan for the organization. These two things would prove to be very important because it would include more members, but it would also set them up for a long-term plan of success. Um, The League was in the forefront of the struggle to pass the Voting Rights Act Amendment in 1982. In 1983, the League adopted a position on public policy on reproductive choice, which was a very um, major thing to do at the time, since that was a very big point of content contempt amongst different organizations. So to take a stance at all, whether for or against, is a big risk to take, mm-hmm. because they would lose members either way.
0: Yeah, unfortunately you can't appease everyone. Um, Sometimes some choices are a little more volatile than others. Yes. Um, That choice,
1: it also... Okay, ignore that, that was wrong. The League also contributed significantly to the enactment of the Historic Tax Reform Act of 1986. Furthermore, it also adopted a position on physical policy in one of the U.S. relations with developing countries. So in the arms control field, for example, the League of Women Voters pressure helped Senate ratification of the groundbreaking Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1988. So just because I think a lot of people when they hear about the League of Women Voters, they only think that the League's purpose is to educate women into voting. And that's not the case. The League also works as a political organization in of itself to advance their goals in what they feel is right for our society. It's not gender bait. I mean, it's not gender-specific. Yeah. And it works to not only address the issues that concern women, but also to address issues that concern all people.
0: Yes, so we've said many times that human rights are, women's rights are human rights and the League truly does live by this. And so sometimes you look at things and you think, well, that's not really with women's needs in mind. A nuclear forces treaty does have women's needs in mind just because it's a human rights treaty. Yes. So, in that
1: same year, the League also completed a study of U.S. agricultural policy. Another thing that they did was, in 1990, members adopted a position on gun control.
0: I wonder if if their position on it has changed any.
1: I'm not sure. I also wonder that, considering the feelings of gun control in general has changed significantly since the 1990s, just because of the increase in um, mass casualties on US soil, for example, school shootings, concert shootings, things of that nature. Also, I think it's just a lot more, you have a lot more accessibility now to guns than you used to, even though people like to think that, like back in the West, for example, if you think like long, long time ago, people had guns everywhere. No, it's. I mean, everybody had guns and carried them. The carrying policy was different, but guns are way more accessible now. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was on the league's radar was that Congress passed reauthorization of the Clean Air Act capping a 10 year legislative campaign. In 1990, the League also launched the Take Back the System, which was a voter campaign to reclaim government and elections and sponsored a presidential primary debate in 1992. In 1993, the League adopted a position on health care and won passage of the National Voter Registration Act, better known as uh, Motor Voter, which I think is a really fun thing to say. I really enjoy that that's the name they came up with, just because it's something that rolls off the tongue really well.
0: I honestly, when I first read that, I was like, this is fake. I had to look it up and find it on the league's website and be like, oh, okay, not fake.
1: And finally, in the last years of the decade, the issue for emphasis, making democracy work included increasing voter turnout, campaign finance reform, civic engagement, diversity of representation, and civic participation and voting representation for the residents of D.C., which we already spoke about and the
0: issues concerning
1: that problem.
0: And many of these goals the league still has today. So like campaign finance reform, um, there's a lawsuit right now against a Pennsylvania representative for how he handled his financials. So finance reform is still a big deal today and something the league advocates for. Obviously, we talk all the time about diversity of representation, Um And D.C., I mean, I'm sure they would like some Congress people eventually. Maybe a star on the flag, but we'll start with Congress people.
1: Yeah. So with all those things in mind, they were really busy. And yet that's not the end of the things that they were working on. So while they looked at issues that were very governmental and legislative based, they were also looking at ways to help women. So... At the time, they were also doing activities called Running and Winning, which was a program that encouraged young women to consider careers as political leaders. Um, and then also following the end of the Cold War, the League began several international programs. So they hosted emerging women leaders from Poland and Hungary. They strengthened women's rights in the NIC. Uh, they held a workshop called voices for women forces for change um and that was held in russia and belarus they also held that in bosnian community in
0: the uh, i said anything bosnia
1: yeah they also held the same campaign for people in the bosnian community also while in bosnia they the Bosnian citizen get out the vote campaign and finally women power in politics which was a building grassroots democracy in Africa. So at this time we start to see the league spread their branches out from America specific issues and looking to help politically with other uh, countries in the world. And then in 1998, which fun fact was the year that I was born, the Democracy Network, DNET, if you guys know it by that, was tested and then launched nationwide in January 2000. This internet website was a major effort to provide information regarding elections to citizens across the nation.
0: So in the modern day, the League has also been up to some great work and they've worked on moving a lot of their stuff online. So beginning in 2000, issues for emphasis emphasis were no longer selected at conventions. Um, And at the 2000 convention, the league adopted a concurrence to add support for restoration of the federal payment to District of Columbia. The league offered the first candidate debates online through the league's internet-based voter education program, DNET. So these weren't presidential debates, these were localized candidates. Um, The league still hosts both virtual and in-person debates today of local candidates, um, which is nice because there aren't typically a lot of platforms for local candidates to debate on. So that is nice to help them out. Um, DNET was very popular among the league, but unfortunately it ended in 2005. Um, It was quickly replaced by the more effective voter education website Vote411 in 2006. Um, They still use Vote411 today and Vote411 is actually designed to be best viewed on mobile devices. Um, That is a more recent change because they found that that's how most people are accessing their data, rather than desktops and or laptops. The League also updated some of their positions in the 2000s. Um, Some of these included trade and the United Nations. So the League was invited to the United Nations Charter Conference in 1945 by Harry Truman Um, They did not serve as part of the delegation, but instead as a consultant. Um, Since then, the League has continued its presence at the United Nations through um, one official presence and two alternate observers. In July of 1997, the League was granted special consultative status (laughs) with the UN Economic and Social Council, which provides the opportunity to make interventions on various issues that the League supports. So in the 2000s, this status allowed the League to make formal, oral, or written statements to the United Nations, which is a pretty big deal because that's not given to too many people who aren't a delegation, and be consulted by the UN in areas which the League has expertise. So they did often update their positions and attend UN meetings on various things that piqued the league's interest and interest of women worldwide. They also adopted updated positions on election of the president. So they felt that more people should be involved in the election process, and they felt that we should move away from the electoral college. They began to support the abolition of the death penalty. Um, It's not still present in all states today, but it is present in some states. Um, Even the states it's present in haven't Some of them haven't had, like, an actual death penalty sentence since Mm -hmm. the early 2000s. Um, Some of them are still going at it today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) um, They also began to study immigration policies at the convention, which was a fairly new idea for the League. Um, Prior to this, they hadn't really gotten involved on immigration. Um, But I also think that comes with immigration started to become a bigger issue in the 2000s. So before there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of immigration. Um, So the League does typically wait until there's discussion on some topic before they take a stance. The League was instrumental in the enactment of the Help America Vote Act of 2002 and the bipartisan campaign campaign finance reform act of that same year. Um, Both of these worked to bring um, more openness to election processes and who you're electing, as well as making sure candidates are reporting everything the way they should. So the Campaign Finance Reform Act requires them to produce campaign records. Um, While that was a national act, it wasn't very descriptive, mostly because a lot of states felt they should have the right to regulate there. Like their state representatives. So some states still have very lax finance laws. Pennsylvania is one of them. Um, There's one in like the northern Midwest. That's also one of them. I can picture the map, but I can't picture the state. (laughs) So it does still vary. um, And the league is still working on those topics, but nothing has really been passed to reform that The League also worked to renew the Voting Rights Act and filed a number of amicus briefs relating to campaign finance reform issues, racial bias in jury selection, and Title IX. Um, Title IX handles equal representation among men and women's sports teams, sexual assault and violence on college campuses, things of that nature. An amicus brief is just a brief submitted to a court hearing by someone who has an invested interest. In the outcome of that hearing and so they sort of plead the case for one side or the other. Um, Amicus literally just means friend of the court. I always thought it was a weird, they're not friends of the court, they're usually telling the court do this or we're not friends anymore. But, I guess, (laughs) assuming that's Latin. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. It's Latin or Greek. Um, Beginning in 2004, the League focused its legislative work under a democracy agenda umbrella that included redistricting. So we did talk about gerrymandering earlier in the year. Um, Civil liberties, obviously campaign finance reform, voting rights for District of Columbia residents, election administration reform, and ethics and lobbying reform. So there's not a whole lot of, I guess, roles to lobbying. Like for a long time, you could work in Congress and then become a lobbyist, which Causes issues for a couple of reasons, but mostly people feel indebted when you do something for them. And then you're like, oh, well, remember when I helped you pass this law and now you have to help me? Um, so since then we have sort of implemented some morals to lobbying, but not, not very many. The League launched a nationwide voter education campaign on five things you need to know on election day in 2004 and repeated it in 2006. Um, this is big because other than the league, there weren't a whole lot of efforts to educate voters. It was more just getting them registered. Um, the league also engaged in multi-year in a multi-year education project on judicial independence. um a major effort was the local voices project that fostered a dialogue on the critical issue of balancing homeland security and civil liberties. Um, so this was around the time of 9-11 and the Patriot Act, and sort of finding the common balance between these. And so the League did work a lot on that. Um, they also continued their international work through several global democracy programs, including working with women in Africa, Brazil, Ukraine, and Russia, all seen to be places where women don't have, um, to be frank, nearly enough rights, but to be a little more correct about it, they are still struggling for independence and to secure some of their personal freedoms. They also participated in a number of programs that focused on increasing the understanding of international affairs on the part of Americans. So Americans sometimes don't understand, um, you know, why we get involved in a conflict or why we don't get involved in certain conflicts. And so being educated on international affairs is equally as important being educated on domestic affairs, especially in this day and age when international affairs are so easy to engage in. Obviously in the 1700s, when you're sailing a ship and writing letters, it's not as easily to get information out as to international projects. Um, As Twitter has demonstrated, a lot of political news can be shared very quickly across Twitter. So there's really no excuse for um, American citizens to not understand what Americans are doing abroad.
1: And now that we all are so well educated on the League of Women's Voters, it is time we move on to my favorite part of our episodes, discussion questions. So for our first discussion question, what was the most influential action of the League of Women's Voters? You have to go first. (laughs) Great. I love that. So I was thinking about it, and it's not so much as a specific event but more so a a long-term action and the long-term action I'm talking about is like perseverance the league throughout their 100 years of existence has gone through major reform and change due to different issues that were occurring in um, American history for example like we already said through the Red Scare, through the Great Depression, they've had to adapt and reconfigure what it means to be able to support women and women's issues in the government and how best they can go about their goals. Um, So I think the biggest influence that they have is just their ability to continually alter their organization to better suit the needs of today
0: i agree with that i think in addition to that i guess because i do agree with that the most influential action the league has taken hasn't necessarily been on american soil i think it's very um impressive i guess that the league reached out to global networking and obviously the united nations Um, has a special place in my heart from competing on Model UN for so long. Well, for three years. (laughs) Not so long. I guess when you're not very old, but whatever. Um, I think that that's very influential, especially seeing that they maintained domestic work as well. So sometimes when a group branches out to get involved in foreign affairs, the domestic affair involvement sort of lags. And I don't think the League has really seen that. And I think that's because they often rework their structure to whatever it's needed to be. So going from um, state conglomerates to regional conglomerates to just a national association. So there's not even really a grouping that you get involved in. You get involved in your national, your local, your state, whatever you feel like. So I think that's very influential to expand to women suffering in other countries.
1: I think so, too. Very much so important and influential because you're influencing not just one type of political person, but on a global level. And that ensures that women from all over the world are given the resources they need to be civically engaged and to know how to better fight for their freedom, really. So number two, should National Voter Registration Day be celebrated on more than just college campuses? Since this is my favorite holiday, I'm sure you guys are going to be able to figure out my answer. So I will let Taylor go first.
0: I think it should. Um, And this year is a really great year. Um, Spotify has launched voter registration efforts. Instagram, I think Snapchat has a snap the vote. Yes. Feature now. Um, so it is great to see other organizations and corporations get involved in this. National voter registration day is very different from those in the idea that for basically 24 hours, you plug nothing but voter registration. Um, and I would love to see it at more than just college campuses. I think when you check out at the supermarket, they should ask you if you're registered to vote on national voter registration day. I think people should set up at public parks. Maybe not during COVID because, like, keep your germs to yourself. But if there was not a pandemic, I think people should just shut, set up everywhere. That was almost bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, coupons would be good. Like, go to Starbucks, and if you show your registration card or some kind of a thing that shows you that you're registered to vote.
0: Yeah, they you would have a hard time with your registration card because you can't require someone one to disclose their party affiliation, and your card oh. has your affiliation. Yeah. Um, but it could be like, well, no, no, I was gonna say you could take your I voted sticker, but that's not what National Voter Registration Day is. Um, but just like any, have a stand set up at Starbucks, and if you stop at their stand and then get your coffee, you get a discount or whatever. Or however, it may be.
1: vote if you have a table there and you register to vote
0: there that could be another way. Yeah, Clarion's always been a big supporter. Um, National Voter Registration Day happens very close to Halloween, so there's usually Halloween candle candy at our tables. We don't have candles, Um, not allowed on Clarion property, but um, so it is, I do think it should be celebrated on more than just college campuses.
1: Yeah, and I think too if it was celebrated more on more than just on college campuses. It would help make people, if it would happen when they're younger, so whenever they're in high school, that will set them up earlier in life to know that it's important to be registered and to make registration seem exciting in comparison to not being registered. And I think it should continue as you get older for those who don't see the importance of it when they're younger, but at a different time in their life, will see the importance of it.
0: Yeah, and there is data to show that if you vote in the first three elections, after you're registered to vote, you'll continue to vote in elections. Whereas if you miss those first three elections, you're less likely to continuously vote, which is a big issue because some states are purging their voter rolls, which I kind of disagree with, but that's a whole nother issue.
1: Yeah. And for our final discussion question, Do you think the League should have opened their membership to men in 1973? I think that it was wise of them to do so. One, because their numbers weren't great. Two, because men can be feminists and men can support women's issues. However, I do want to say that it is important that they continue to ensure the, how do I want to say it? I want to, I, I would like to make sure that they are ensuring the purpose of their organization and by including men, they are not
0: overcasting women, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do think that is a big issue. Sometimes allies will step into a movement and actually speak over the people the movement is about. Um, we've talked about that in other groups. It's very notable in um, the LGBT plus community. I'm not mad that they opened membership to men. I just sometimes question why people want to be involved in spaces that aren't necessarily for them. Like some people I think have good motivation. Other people I sometimes question with the fear of, are you trying to turn this into um, almost like performative allyship where, oh, I'm a member of the league, but I also tell women how they should police their bodies and what they should look like and what they should wear. Um, So that is just always something that like, I'm curious about like, why did men wanna join the League of Women's Voters? (laughs) Like, why do straight students wanna join um, LGBT plus alliances on college campuses? And some of them are just allies who want to show support. Um, But it's just always something where I'm like, "Mm, but why?
1: (laughs) play devil's advocate that there are people that are for ex- let's let's stick with the women's scenario that are women in the Le- league of women's voters that don't share the league's perspective on the majority of topics and the only reason that you know they probably are seen less uh risky to include in the organization than men is because of their gender not because of their beliefs
0: um That's just me playing devil's advocate, though. This is true. And I'm not saying that the league shouldn't have opened their membership to men. Um, It does seem kind of weird that men are allowed to vote in the league. Like, you're voting on things that don't necessarily impact you all the time. So if you're voting on the league's stance on abortion, men don't get abortions. And so um, it's also much easier for a man to abandon a child than a woman to abandon a child. So I do think um, that's a little odd just because other organizations in the past have allowed men, but without voting rights in their organization. Yeah. But I think it's fine um, as long as, you know, they're not problematic in the organization. I think it's doing all right so far. Yep, I think so too.
1: So if you've got nothing else from this episode, friends, make sure you go out and become registered to vote. Please,
0: pretty please, pretty please with sugar on top, pretty, pretty please. It's vote411.org, you can look and see what the registration requirements are for your state, what the ID laws are for your state. So some states require voter IDs, um, and every state is different. Some allow you to use a utility bill, some don't. Some require you to have a photo on your ID. So Vote411 offers great resources for that. They also link you to your ballot so you can be prepared. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Absentee and mail-in if it's available in your state. And it's kind of a fun website. It's got a nice user interface. We love that. We do, because sometimes, I'll be really honest, sometimes if a website's not, like, user-friendly, I'm not. Yeah, you're just not going to stick. Yeah, whatever I went there to do is instantly not as important as I thought it was. (laughs) So please go out and register to vote. Now, Taylor, what are we talking about next week? So next week, we are going to be discussing Phyllis Schlafly. Um, So if you haven't watched Miss or Mrs. America, is she married? (laughs) Is America married? I think it's MRS. Okay, so Mrs. America. Um, that gives you a week to do so. I think there's like 10 episodes, yeah, 9 episodes. It's it's a good show. It's a real good show. Very bingeable. Um, Phyllis does have her own episode, so you can come with some background information. She is unlike every other woman we have discussed thus far, but she is very similar to them in other ways. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure that with our podcast, we are not only focusing on women
1: that share our political beliefs, but women in general, influential in politics, because that is the point is that we want more women to be included, no matter whether we agree or disagree with their opinions.
0: Yes. And she was very involved in politics.
1: Very, very, very involved. And I cannot wait to talk about it. (laughs) And... Finally, one last time, please, dear God, go out and get registered to vote. Goodbye, friends. How do I shut the recording off? This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening and make sure that you go out and register to vote.